Okay, we're in Lesson 8 today. We're going to continue on in the issue of suffering. I, I've, I've shared with you before numerous times, I shared last week when we introduced this lesson about the issue of suffering. You and I have to grasp the reality, and it's hard for us, because suffering, we have cushioned our lives from a lot of the hardships of life. And, and that's been especially true when you have such an affluent culture as we do. We have cushioned ourselves. And, and add to that, there, there is a, there's an underlying tone in Christianity, North, Amer North American Christianity. It's called the prosperity gospel. Now, you may flat out reject it, but whether you realize it or not, there, there is influence there. And the influence of the prosperity gospel is, is that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And you say, well, I don't know that I'm being influenced by that, George. I've just flat out rejected. Well, the next time something wrong happens to you, watch how you respond. And if your response is, why are you letting this happen to me, God? I have served you for so long. You have bought into the prosperity gospel, whether you've wanted to or not. Because you have embraced the underlying thinking there that God wants you to always be okay. And as a believer, everything's going to be wonderful. But the reality is, it's not going to be wonderful. If anything, and here's what I hate. I hate it when we talk to new Christians and we tell them, well, now that you've come to Christ, everything's going to be okay. Because it isn't. It actually gets, it actually gets worse. Because now they have an enemy who's against them. Before, he didn't care because you were headed to hell. See, here's the thing. When you hear people talking about selling their soul to the devil, they don't know what they're talking about. You already are going to hell. The reality is, when you become a believer, you, get, you just paint a big red target on your chest. A spiritual target. And that's reality. And what we've got to wake up to, and this is why Peter spends a lot of time in this, in this first epistle of his, talking about suffering... Because that's a reality all of us have to live with. We are going to suffer for Jesus. We're going to suffer for our faith. So let me just go ahead and say it. Not everybody's going to like the fact that you're a Christian. Period. And you know what? It's interesting because we like to think, and, I like, and I'll phrase it this way, we like to think that there was a time when Christianity was accepted in our country, but it wasn't. Never really has been. You say, what are you talking about? Well, I just recently was listening to a message by the, one of the, a church historian on revival, James Edwin Orr, talking about 200 years ago at the founding of our nation when they looked at the major universities, which we like to point back at and say that they were Christian universities. They would point out that, that you know, at one time, I think it was one of the big schools had no believers or only two out of the student body. It, it's, you understand, there's always been that tension. Always been that tension. We would like to think certain things, but it's not. And why, do I, why am I putting that out to you? Because I want you to understand, being a Christian means you're going to suffer. Jesus said that. This is not George Cannon telling you that. Jesus said you would suffer for his sake. In fact, Jesus said that they hate the master. How much more will they beat the servant? And who, whose servants are we, folks? Christ's servants. So we need to understand the reality of it. Now, it sounds like I'm being gloom and doom. We might as well just go home. 
take a nap. Just forget about life because it's terrible. You know, if that were true, then really we would be miserable. But the reality is, is we do have a hope. And there is a response to the suffering that's going to come. And suffering will come from the most unusual places. But we need to be ready for it. So let's look at what he says. He's going to continue on here. We're in chapter 4 today. We're going to look at the first 19 verses of chapter 4. And again, here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about the proper attitude towards suffering. And this is, this is important because a lot of what you're seeing today in the church is not good as far as our reaction to, to, to persecution and suffering. And it comes more out of our Americanism than it does out of our Christianity. Because Jesus is the one who said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? Offer him the other cheek. Now that goes against the heart of what we believe as individuals. Now, here can I tell you why he says that? Because your willingness to suffer for Jesus is a testimony for Christ. And history shows that. History shows that. So we're talking about a proper attitude. We're going to talk about our conduct, which is connected, because out of our attitude comes our conduct. And then we're going to talk about how to endure in the midst of suffering. So let's look. First of all, look with me at verses 1 to 6. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So let's first of all, let's look at the encouragement, and then we'll look at the basis. First thing I want you to see here is this. Peter encourages believers to have the same determined mindset as Jesus. Let's just stop for a moment. What we're really talking about here is an overarching goal for your life as a believer. What we're really talking about is what you need to be striving for. Does everybody understand? It is the task of a believer to become like Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. You're not here so that life is going well for you. You're not here to achieve the goals that you have in life. Because here's the thing. Remember, a lot of what we've been talking about in Peter as far as the new birth and a new life, is it a selfless life or a selfish life? Anybody? It's a selfless life. So everything about my life is not to be for me. It's to be for others. So even in my suffering... I need to think about who? Others. See, that's what Jesus did. See, he wants us to have that same mindset. Now, here's the basis for it. We must stop sinning as we identify ourselves with Jesus who died to sin. We must stop sinning. Look with me at verse 1, what he says there. 
Therefore, arm yourselves with the same mindset, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what is he, he's doing here is he's encouraging you and I to be obedient to who? Jesus. So when I'm obedient to Jesus, I'm going to stop what? Sinning. See, suffering helps me to realize that this life, let, let's be honest, because we like to think that this life is wonderful and it has a lot to offer us, but it really doesn't. In fact, if you want to know that, just read Ecclesiastes. And you'll read about a man who had everything. Let's talk about him for a minute. You want to talk about a man who had money? He had all the money you could ever want. Period. You want to talk about somebody who could indulge in his lusts? The man had more wives than he knew what to do with. And then on top of that, not just wives, he had concubines. I mean, so this guy had everything. And then how he sums it up is this. Vanity of vanity. All is what? Vanity. He had everything life had to offer. Well, he didn't have an iPod. Believe me, it didn't matter. And if you get your iPod, you'll find out. It's vanity. The bottom line is this. When you realize, suffering helps you to realize that this life doesn't have everything to offer. It gives you an other world perspective, which is the perspective of being with Jesus. And then you realize it is so important because he's the greater reality that I be, what, obedient to him. So I need to, what, suffering helps me to realize that I need to stop from, what, sinning. Because this world is marked by, what, sin. The indulgence of lust, the indulgence of passion, the indulgence of desires, the indulgence of self. Now, see, that's what's going on. That's really what's going on. So he goes on then. He's going to tell us here, and Paul's making a great point here, and I thought this was an interesting point. Look with me at verse 3. Look at what he says there. He said, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. Paul tells us that we've spent enough time sinning before salvation. He's saying, hey guys, you've already spent more than enough time doing what's wrong. You've already spent more than enough time doing what's wrong. You don't need to engage in it anymore. It's meaningless. It's only a detriment to you. Get away from it. But you know what? We're thick, aren't we? Let's be honest. I mean, you may not like me saying that, but we are. We're thick in the head a little bit because for some reason we think, oh, just one more time. Just one more time. But have you noticed that even that one more time is what? Not satisfying? On Thursday, there's a men's grace group going on, and we're going through The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, which is a great book. I read it years ago, and we're going through it again. And Jerry Bridges in his book talks about the issue of sin and about the power of sin has been broken. And with that, we have the ability to say no to it. And then he makes a very interesting point that I thought was really good. He said, how you apply that to your life by knowing that the power of sin is broken to you is saying no to it. Jesus has broken the power of sin, but now you need to say no to sin rather than just doing it. And here's what he said. I thought this was a great point. He said... Each time you don't say no, it gets harder to say no the next time. So you need to say no the first time. Each time you don't say no to sin, it gets harder the next time. And isn't that true? Isn't that what addictions are? And let's just stop for a moment. Addictions are not just drugs. 
You can get addicted to anything. Period. TV. You know what? You can get addicted to sports. You can get addicted to anything. Exercise, you can get uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not calling this. I, mean, I know I, I need to get addicted to exercise. But, I mean, you know, you can get addicted to even exercise, the rush of exercise. And it can become your master because you didn't know when to say no. You understand what I'm saying? Because you didn't know when to say no. And so Peter is saying to us here, listen, guys, you've already spent more than enough time before you became a Christian doing what's wrong, seeking after sin. In fact, look at what he gives as far as the list of sins that we were involved in. He said walking in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Here on our, our focus on everything else that satisfies who? Yeah, us. Us. Let me just stop for a moment. You cannot read a passage like this and say, well, I just read through that list. doesn't apply to me. He's using very vague terms here. When he says lust, he didn't say lust for what? He just says lust. It means strong desires. See, we think of lust in terms of some like pervert or something. That's not what he's talking about here. Or when he says about abominable idolatries, he's talking about us substituting something else for God. And that is abominable to him. See, your substitution, you could worship your hobby, and that would be abominable to God. See, we like to put this in terms of what we like it to mean. But the reality is when he's talking about here, he, Peter is not just addressing a specific, he's generalizing here. He's wanting to encompass all of his readers here. When he says that you have spent more than enough time sinning before salvation, it's time to give it up now. See, suffering helps you to realize, you know what, this life is too short. I need to have an otherworldly mindset. And I need to stop my sinning. I need to stop my sinning. So here's the reaction of the law. So when we do do that, when we do back off from what the world is telling us to do, when we do stop sinning, here's the reaction of the world. Here's how the world's going to respond to it. The unbeliever thinks it's strange that you no longer pursue sin in your life. I'll, I'll never forget it. I, I remember when I became a believer in April of 1985, and the guys that I used to hang out with and go drinking with, they were like, What's up with you? What happened to you? Oh, and you try to explain them. Oh, you're going to church now, huh? We'll see how you are in a few weeks. See, people don't understand you abstaining from... It makes them uncomfortable. See, and, and we know it makes it uncomfortable because we don't want anybody to be uncomfortable with us. We, we want everybody to accept us, don't we? And so it makes them uncomfortable that you quit doing the things that they're doing. And, and, and really what Peter, so when you look at the reaction, it's, the Bible already talks there's going to be a reaction, isn't there? There's going to be a reaction from folks to the fact that you're going to stop doing those things and about getting serious with your life. And so people are watching you. So here's the thing. This results in their speaking evil about believers. It results in them speaking evil about believers. Hey... You, that Tom, he went off the deep end. He got religion. You know, he's really whacked out crazy. 
Better watch out for him. How many of us have heard things like that? You know? See, they'll speak evil of you. They'll, they'll call you crazy. They'll call you nuts. See, you'll get speak, spoken of evil. And that's reality. But see, here's the thing, though. We don't like that, do we? Let, let me just put it right down, to the, right down to the rubber meets the road. We don't like people not liking us. So our tendency is to default. What do we default to? When people don't like us, we want them to like us. So one of two things got to happen. They have to become like us, or we've got to become like them. Now, the chances are, very. we realize real quick that they're not going to become what? Like us. So then we do what? We compromise is what the word is compromise. We become like them. A backsliding could be a part of it, Tom. We compromise our lives, so we're quiet rather than maybe speaking out. We laugh at the wrong things now. Well, we, well, before it wasn't wrong, but now it's wrong. And all because we don't want to draw attention to ourselves because we want to be what? Accepted. But here's the point I want you to see. The issue is, as far as understanding about suffering, suffering becomes a part of our lives as believers because you'll never be accepted. The natural man cannot accept you because he's in rebellion against who? God. You know? He's in rebellion against you because he's God. And what I want you to see is, is so you're his servant, they're going to have an attitude towards you. So give me, let me you say, really? Yeah, think about it. We do, it's on a practical everyday level. I can remember, okay? We identify the people of a country with what the actions of their what? God, leaders. And when we blast the people of a country, I mean, like, for, I can remember going into East Berlin and having an attitude towards Russian soldiers walking by. And it may have been a private. And I got an attitude towards that Russian soldier. He's just doing his job. The guy making the decisions ain't the private. You know what I'm saying? And, but our anger is towards who? All of them. See, here's what I'm saying. So you've got natural man. His anger is in rebellion against who? God. Who's he going to be angry at? Not just God, but everybody who what? Represents God. Everybody who represents God. See, what I want you to see is, is that he wants you to understand that you're going to be spoken evil of. Because man is in rebellion against God, and they don't like it. I'll never forget the story I I remember reading it. Billy Graham likes to, before, when his health was good, he liked to play golf. And he was in some sort of golf thing. And he went on, did it for 18 holes, and he was with some pro. And that pro went into the locker room, and he was cursing and stomping and throwing around the lockers. And said, oh, that Billy Graham, you know. And, and the, one of the other guys with him said, boy, was he hard on you? What did he say to you? And the guy said, he stopped for a moment, hang his head down, he said, he didn't say anything. He was just reacting towards the life. See, sometimes you don't even have to say anything to cause a reaction. It's just simply what you represent. See, so this results in evil being spoken of about people. Let's go on now. Here's the hope of the gospel, though. The gospel provides hope concerning the believers, concerning believers who should be an ass who have died. The gospel provides hope concerning believers who have died. Look with me at verse 6. He says, 
For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to, to men in the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. The gospel provides hope concerning the believers who have died. Here's the other thing. While they have faced judgment in this life, they are experiencing eternal life. Now, here's the concept I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to grasp, because this is what he's talking about. And this is not just mentioned in this one passage. It's mentioned in several different passages. Man must face a judgment concerning its sin. Does everybody understand me? The question is, what kind of judgment? See, you and I have to face a judgment concerning our sins. Period. Just like if you realize you have to face two deaths. Let me just stop it for a moment. Do you realize you have to face two deaths? You say, well, I thought I was saved from the second death. Well, you still had a second death occur, but you had a choice in it. Paul says, for I am what? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. See, when you became a believer, you died to who? The sin. There was a death that took place. Now, people who don't... Jesus are going to experience a second death. What second death is that? Hell. Okay, let me just stop for a moment. Back to what I was saying. You and I are going to face judgment concerning our sin. But since I have accepted Jesus, will I face the judgment later on? No. That's hell. The judgment I face now is this life. And it's anger towards turned towards me because of my belief in Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying, it's better for you to experience the judgment now, and suffering now, knowing what awaits you later, is what? Eternal life. See, do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm going through now is just part of this life. In fact, what I'm going through now, others aren't facing, because they haven't followed Jesus, but they haven't followed Jesus, what are they facing? Eternity in hell. An eternity separated from God. But for us, it's an eternity what? With life. Paradise. In fact, let me, give, let me help you to understand what I'm talking about. Okay, let's take that front again. Let's take the front of this, this thing. We'll say that's all of eternity. If we, could, if we could picture eternity, because we can't. Well, let's try to. Let's say the span from the front is eternity. And all the way over in this corner is a teeny weeny crack. It's right here. Do you see this crack, everybody? If you do, we've got to do something. There's a crack right here. That teeny-weeny crack is your life right now. That teeny-weeny crack is marked by suffering. Suffering for Christ. How does it compare to all of eternity? I'm running. I'm getting my exercise today. Okay. How does it compare to eternity of life with Christ? What's going to be more wonderful? I mean, and it keeps going. Out the door here. You know what I'm saying? Eternity keeps going. How, how, what's it compare? All right, but let me just stop for a moment. Where's our focus? On that crack. We're trying to make sure that this life is okay. Have you noticed, I mean, have you noticed the things that we think are going to bring us comfort never do? Or it's only temporary. The stuff that we live for, and, oh, i got to have it! Two years later, you're putting it out to the curb for them to take to the landfill. 
Because our focus is where? He's telling us our focus has to be where? On eternity. Eternity. See, while they face judgment now, while we face judgment now, they're going, they're experiencing eternal life. Here's the proper conduct. Notice with me verse 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, be fervent. Have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's notice the proper conduct. First of all, the proper perspective. We are to place all things in proper perspective. Listen, when you look at a, look, my little guy, my, my illustration up here, that helps put things in proper perspective, doesn't it? What are you living for? What are you living for? I mean, you know, it's interesting. You drive around here, and you ever, you ever notice that some, there are just some places around here that look like they're just ready to fall over? Houses? The structure's gone. The foundation's gone. I mean, they look like they're just ready to go. All right? And then you look and you see people trying to work on it. Put, maybe put a new paint job on it or whatever, but they're not taking care of the structure because the structure is gone. And they're just kind of put, it's like putting a Band-Aid on. I know, Bruce, that you're glad they come and buy supplies from you, so we don't want to encourage them not to do that. But it's futile, isn't it? It's futile that they're trying to, to, to take care of this structure. It looks like it's going to fall over. But they're trying to make the best of it. You know, that's, we're just the same way. This life we're in is futile. It is heading nowhere. In fact, the Bible describes where it's heading. Fire. It's going to be burned up. We keep trying to do whatever. We keep trying to make our existence here whatever. We're trying to make it more happy and more pleasing and more ever. And it's just like that guy trying to work on a building that's getting ready to fall over. We've got to have a proper perspective. We've got to have it a perspective that, you know what, I'm here, I'm just a sojourner. Remember, he talked about that earlier in chapter 1. He called us, what, pilgrims and what, sojourners. We're just here temporarily. Don't get too comfortable. Don't live your life. I mean, you say, well, Jesus hasn't come back yet. And you're right, he may not come back for another hundred years. But what I want you to hear here is this, is while you're here, even if you die here, you're here temporarily. Because remember... What was Abraham? Sojourner. Did he see the fulfillment of the promises in his time? No, but he was faithful. So you've got to be faithful to a proper perspective of God first. Everything else you've got to hold on loosely to. Everything else you've got to hold on loosely to. Everything else has to be held on loosely to. And we'll talk about that more later as far as holding on loosely. We need to, we are to recognize that we're approaching the end of time. First of all, God doesn't operate on our timetable. This is a good point for me to make a point. I've been struck by this lately. The Lord's been convicting me about this whole issue about the end times. And here's 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 the conviction I had, because I hear a lot of people talking about we're in the end times. And it's especially happened since November. I hear a lot more people talking about it. 
And one day the Lord, I was thinking about it. It's like the Lord was saying to me, hmm, so you want Jesus to come back? Yes, Lord. Why? Why? Ooh. Here's what he exposed in me. I keep hearing the talk. I get to talk about Jesus coming back or whatever because I'm not happy with the way the culture's going. And I want Jesus to come back for my comfort more so because I want Jesus to come back. And God exposed me and ripped my heart out because it wasn't for Jesus that I was wanting him to come back. It was so that I could be comfortable. It's kind of tough, isn't it? So guess what? I don't talk about him too much anymore. Unless my motives are right. See, we gotta have we want Jesus to come back because we want Jesus. But there's a fine line there, and you gotta ask yourself, have you crossed over when you say you want Jesus to come back because you you're uncomfortable with the way things are going? See, here's what he's saying. We are to recognize that we are approaching the end of time. And that should cause us to desire who? Jesus. Not our comfort. See, when I focus on my comfort, what? Selfish. Let's go on. Here's the other thing. Proper conduct. Here's what he's saying. We are to be serious and watchful we are to be serious and watchful in our prayers. How serious are you taking prayer these days? How serious are you? And I'm not talking about the default prayers. I'm not talking about God bless the missionary, God bless the pastor, God bless the church. You know, and, and Lord, here's my grocery list of things I need you to do for me. And you spend more time talking about your grocery list than about what really matters. How serious are you? Are you watchful in prayer? Lord, I see the time is coming. I see it at hand. Oh, Jesus, I want you to come back for you. Lord, as I see the times are handy, I, I know that my loved ones who don't know you are headed to hell. Father, I pray for them. They, Lord, open their eyes. You want to, here's one of the things that God has been impressing upon my heart, especially here in the last few weeks with some things that have happened in the church. What he's been impressing upon my life is, is that unless God opens their eyes, they don't see it. So guess how I'm praying? Open their eyes, Lord. You're the only one who can open their eyes. Open their eyes. So you and I got to be serious about our prayer time. We've got to be serious and watchful in our prayers. So as I'm going through it, as I'm watching things get uncomfortable, as I see some persecution and, and suffering happening, happening in the lives of believers, i got to get serious about my prayer time. I gotta get serious. I gotta get serious. Let's go on. The issue is love. We need to be marked by unconditional love towards each other. Unconditional. Listen, when we talk about unconditional, we're talking about the same kind of love that Jesus had. Like, I'm, I'm glad that, that Jesus loves balding guys because I know I'm losing it up here. I'm going bald. And I'm glad that he doesn't hold it against me that all my hair's falling out. Now, I know that's a ridiculous, laughable thing, but, I mean, it could be anything. He could be, he could be 
accepting of you because you're an American. Rather than not be accepting of you. In fact, can I be honest with you? There are more Christians in China and Africa than there are in the United States. And either one of those continents. And they're undergoing more severe things than we are. He's unconditional in his love. Aren't you glad? Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be, I'm supposed to be, my goal, my overarching goal is to be like Jesus. So I need to be what? Unconditional in my love towards you. But we need to be marked by unconditional love towards each other. Let's go on. We need to be hospitable. We are to willingly be hospitable to those in need without complaining. Listen, I know how it is. We have a need. If somebody within our church needs needs, we're going to take an love offering. And you know what? And you'll say, okay, I'll give. But I, why, why can't they get their act together? I guess I think I know who it is. And they don't know how to handle their money. Is that what he's calling here about? See, here's what he's saying. You and I live in a culture where we as believers are going to suffer at the hands of unbelievers. They're going to speak evil of us. And so do you understand the whole nature of church then becomes takes on a whole new focus then? So that when you come to church, you're with others who are facing the same thing. And you need to what? Be there for each other. And even if that person does keep making wrong decisions... I need to love them like I would love my own family. Because, you know, you know, isn't that true? You've got kids that sometimes make wrong decisions. And you're patient with them, aren't you? Sometimes, okay. Yeah, but do you understand what I'm saying? Because what is guiding you in your actions with your child? Love. He's saying for you and I, he just said to be show unconditional love, and so now he's going to put feet to it and say you need to be hospitable, willingly hospitable to others without complaining. Hey, I'll go one step further. Do you realize the reason why you have what you have is because God gave it to you so you could help somebody else? He didn't give it to you for your own lusts. There's that word. Hey, yes, what now? Ooh. That's good. Well, let, here, let me see your daily bread. Let me read that. Oh, and it's good. It's large print, too, so I can read it. Okay. All right. We're going we're gonna to stop our lesson because we are going to, if you've got questions, I want you to write them down now. But I want to make a comment here because I think this is good. I want you to listen to what the writer says. Historically, the Lord has dealt harshly with his people who have become arrogant overfed and unconcerned. And he's taking it from Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. The antidote to the poison of self-indulgence is the desire to please God and serve others, not ourselves. Can I tell you, this is what's going on with the church in North America. We are overfed, we are arrogant, and you know what? We're asking, and I believe God is dealing harshly with us. Now, here's the reason, here's what, how we can respond. There's one of two ways we can respond, and I'll give this back to you, Mary. We can respond by just saying, oh, well, we'll just go on the way things are always going on. Or we can respond acknowledging it and turning from it and saying, Lord, forgive us. Hey, you're going to come to that place anyhow. What do you mean? 
He's going to keep turning up the heat until you acknowledge Him if you're a believer. Until you acknowledge Him. Okay. And the next week we'll uh, finish up our lesson. We're going to, we've got to finish up our proper conduct and our proper endurance. Let's, uh, let's close our time in prayer.